2: Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headline. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking today with Matthew Saperon, CEO of Perigen, an innovator in perinatal software solutions for obstetric surveillance and electronic fetal monitoring. He's here to talk about rural hospitals, the growing prevalence of maternity deserts in the US and EFM's increasingly important role in perinatal obstetrics. Great to have you on, Matt.
3: Tamara, thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet you. In
2: 2020, National Advisory Committee on Rural Health and Human Services, or NACRIS, made policy recommendations including the development guidelines for safety and treatment protocols in rural hospitals and clinics both with and without OB services to respond to obstetric complications as well as the reduction of peripartum racial ethnic disparities so can you talk about what informed these sorts of policies what's happening in these rural communities as far as sure
3: I'd be happy to and in fact if, if it's okay with you actually- I want to take a step even a little bit further back and and uh, talk to you and your listeners about some general backdrops that are impacting obstetrics and perinatal care, Please. because they're only made worse, frankly, by some of these items that we're talking about in rural environments and uh, in obstetric deserts. So a, a few things to remember about um, labor and delivery today is that, number one, the patients are becoming increasingly complex. So over the last 10 years, Not only has the average age of a first-time mother gone up a little bit, but a lot of comorbidities that are just not really great for mom or not great for baby and that have to be very actively managed are on the rise as well. And by that, I'm talking about diabetes, obesity, hypertension. These are all things that present a lot of complexity for uh, physicians and moms to manage. And so you've got a backdrop of a maternal profile that's getting a little bit more complex Uh, requiring a bit more uh, management. And then you've got um, not a well-known fact, but the reality is that once a baby is gone to term, so 36 weeks or beyond of gestational age, which is about 92% of the births in North America, Mm -hmm. um, when things go wrong at that point, they're very highly avoidable. So there's a, a couple of statistics that I think are always helpful from a background perspective. The first is that in term babies, in childbirth, 55% of fetal brain injuries are actually avoidable. And 60% of birth-related cerebral palsy cases are actually, again, avoidable. And 63% of maternal mortality uh, and morbidity is avoidable. These are term babies. Um, and they almost all root back to this concept of delayed recognition communication and management of clinical warning signs. So that's in even the most sort of well funded, well established that, you know, these are statistics that cut across the entire nation. So not even just rural. So you can see that perinatal care has some challenges ahead of it. Um, A lot of the problems are because the tools that, uh, that the nurses use and that the physicians use are very subjective in nature. They require a nurse to be, um, expert all the time, 24, seven, you know, sort of an inhuman amount of focus, uh, regardless of whether that she had a great night's sleep the night before or the day before, or she's been doing this for 20, 30 years or 20, 30 months. Or, um, so it's, it's a backdrop that is already has us kind of back on our heels, and now let's talk about rural health and human services with that sort of in the background, knowing that even in the most well-funded environments have a lot of challenges, both the maternal profile as well as the you know, bad outcomes that occur that are avoidable. So you know, a lot of our customers, and I called a few of our customers in advance of, of this call that are operating in, in very rural areas. And they're all thrilled by the way that you chose to take this topic, because in their mind, they're feeling that you know rural maternity Uh, center closures and lack of resources are really just finally getting the attention that it deserves. This has been going on, you know, for at least a decade. The reality is, is that a lot of these women in these rural environments need to drive, you know, 30 minutes to a delivery center, 30 minutes to an antenatal testing center to have a non-stress test. Probably 10 or 20 percent of them have to drive, you know, 100 miles. I mean, that is just ridiculous, very difficult for women to do that. Uh, and take proper care of themselves. And again, let's go back to the first comment, which is these moms are living more complicated uh, physical lives now as well. So it really sort of stacks things up against that, those rural environments. And a lot of it comes down to lack of resources. I mean, you know, we, talk about, uh, we talk about obstetric deserts, we talk about uh, you know, professionals being able to provide quality levels of care and consistent levels of care. The reality is that in obstetrics, there's just not enough docs, and that number of practicing physicians is coming down. There's not enough nurses. That number of practicing nurses uh, is coming down fairly significantly. Even before the pandemic, there's a bolus of nurses who are reaching retirement age. And so as these nurses are leaving, even again, even before the pandemic, they were slow to be backfilled, and they're getting filled by nurses that don't have anywhere near the experience, uh, of the nurses that were currently, uh, in place and that are retiring. So, you know, you sort of lose that, um, you lose a lot of that experience. You might have a body that fills that gap, but you're losing an awful lot of experience uh, that goes along with it. So it's really difficult. I think as you look at rural outcomes, You know, maternal mortality in rural environments is somewhere along the the numbers of about 29 out of 100,000 live births, whereas in an urban center, it's more around 18 out of 100,000. None of that is acceptable, by the way, but you can see the disparity that exists in a rural environment.
2: Well, so what are maternity deserts then? And what types of challenges do they present, expecting mothers?
3: Well, I think if you're living in a rural environment, you are likely in a maternity desert. You know, you have to drive an hour to go see a doc for a standard mode of care. Heaven forbid you start going into labor earlier than you anticipated. You might have a really long haul before you get there. That's why so many organizations have been trying to make sure that uh, critical access hospitals at least have a base level of experience and technology on hand to help uh, manage uh, in impending labor but you know the reality is if you're at an academic medical center tamara you know a lot of the nurses there have been trained and certified in in uh, labor and delivery and they do this all day every day it's their passion it's their expertise these nurses that are operating out in rural communities they are jacks of all trades they are doing everything they're cross trained across all of the different types of care that they have to deliver They're probably, you know, doing, uh, you know, a birth a week. So when things come along, they're not really used to seeing things. They're not used to being able to uh, jump in and, you know, be able to give good feedback to the physician. And, And by the way, the physician might be a family practitioner who as well is not doing a steady stream of labor and delivery. It's kind of a perfect storm where you've got complex mothers, complex problems, but a significant lack of investment in the infrastructure in these maternity deserts, in rural communities. Uh, Just by nature of population, by nature of uh, Medicaid funding, most of these rural babies are actually underwritten by Medicaid reimbursement. And Medicaid reimbursement is significantly less on a per birth basis than private insurance, which is problematic. And then 60 days after the baby's born, a lot of these Medicaid benefits uh, expire, which you wow. know might be at a time when a mom really needs some more help.
2: Do you think that nurse um, and maybe to some extent physician training, do you think that their training has kept up with patient challenges as far as the, the patient landscape you described earlier?
3: Yeah, it's such a wonderful question. And I think it's something that hospital administrators are really trying to get their arm around. So I would say that in rural communities, again, primarily I think the training is probably lacking. Again, it gets gets back to the overall theme that I hope you and your listeners take away from this is there's just a lack of resources that are made available in these communities. So that's one uh, particular issue. However, I think that most of the nurses that I've come across are generally, they're really well-trained. They're excellent at what they do. And, you know, first of all, no one, Goes into being a nurse to be like just mediocre, right? I mean, this is one of those few positions where people feel a real calling. But in general, what we have found is, you know, getting back to these bad outcomes that I mentioned at the, at the start, it's generally not that the nurse doesn't know what to do, right? If you stopped a nurse and gave her a situation, and she could probably tell you all the things to do, the issue is is they're not recognizing in a timely fashion. That this labor is starting to go sideways. Some of these warning signs are very faint. They happen over time. Some of the training has been focused on thresholds. You know, if there's one, if there's a single fetal heart rate deceleration, we have a problem. If there's uterine tachycystole persistent for a minute or two, or you know, there, there's a problem. The reality is what really matters in labor and delivery are the trends, the degree and the duration of, it, of any abnormality. If over time things are trending worse, you are definitely going to have a problem. The issue is that nurses have so much going on. They've got to document so much. They need to help their colleagues across the hall. They're dealing with residents. They're dealing with physicians. Sometimes they just don't get the chance to focus expressly on that patient and on how these trends are evolving over time. And that's when you get into trouble. So I think it's less about the training and simulations and more about recognizing when something is actually going awry to then use that training for. Does that make sense?
2: It does, except that if you're not trained to recognize the signs, you see it becomes circular then, right? It,
3: it, is, it is a little bit circular. Part of this is the ability to spend the right amount of time looking at these trends and also using analytical skills to be able to determine, look, the fetal heart rate is showing this potential problem, but I'm talking to the patient. She seems fine. She seems comfortable. I'm feeling the baby move. You know, nurses have to deal with an awful lot of data. What we try to do at Perigen is take one or two components of that away from weighing on the nurse hundred percent and allow her to really practice Nursing, as as she learned, but you know it's a right point that are you trained to look at those trends over time? I think I think they're trained to do that, but the environment is so dynamic, uh, Tamara, that maybe they don't have the opportunity to practice the way that they would like to all the time.
2: Right, and then you also have the situation where some patients are just so far away. How do you educate the patient? to recognize certain signs themselves, right?
3: It's really it's really hard to do. I'll, I'll tell you what I think a wonderful future state is. There are a couple of companies that are trying to create signal acquisition tools, like a fetal monitor you might have at the bedside, but that can go in the home, such that a mom with a cell phone, right, or uh, or Wi-Fi service, would be able to provide some sort of monitoring capability for her and her fetus while she's sitting at her home. So she doesn't have to take time off from work and lose those wages and spend all that money and gas and travel to drive 50 or 60 miles to go see a physician for what would be a typical standard test there are a number of companies who are working on getting the FDA to to clear them. They're medical devices so they have to go through an FDA clearance. And my hope is in the next 18 to 24 months we start to see a greater proliferation of these devices that go into the home. I think in general we have to realize that there is a huge gap in nursing personnel and capacity and physician personnel and capacity and I, and I'm just not bullish on that changing. So the reality is now is the time for caregivers to focus on what can technology do to lighten the load and maybe create a bit more of an exacting environment for these nurses and physicians to practice it. So one of the things that we try to do with our tool is use artificial intelligence to create real-time analysis that is equivalent to having an expert at the bedside. So computers count things really, really well. You know, computers aren't generally empathetic beings, uh, but but they count really well. So bad nurse, great counter. (laughs) So can we use tools like ours to augment what the nurse has to do, take some of the sort of exacting counting off of her plate, allow her to spend more time with the patient, and maybe even allow the mom to generate data that our analytics can analyze and determine whether or not she's potentially entering into a, uh, a threat zone or not. So I think it's quite important that health systems and nurses and physicians and frankly, Medicaid and other you know, payers realize that the only way to get some level of sustainable care is to look for folding in tools similar to what we have and other companies have as well. Folding in tools to help the nurse practice nursing. It's the only sustainable way that we are going to be able to reach this challenge. And as you look in a rural environment where there's even less reimbursement, where there's even less nursing uh, capacity, the only way we're going to survive is to take advantage of technology
2: So can you define what electronic fetal monitoring is? So
3: I'll do my best. You know, fetal monitoring is essentially trying to identify if the fetus is at risk of something going wrong during labor and delivery. It started in the 1800s with physicians and, you know, big, crazy looking stethoscopes trying to figure out what was going on. If you look at electronic fetal monitoring today, you'll typically see in a labor and delivery room. A mom will come in and they'll put a couple of devices around her belly with a right. couple of straps. And if, if you have children, you probably yeah. vaguely remember yeah. having all this stuff on you. And, and you've got what's called a Doppler transducer, which is essentially like a sound uh, sound wave radar that's looking for a fetal heart rate. And you've got something called a tocodynamometer. It's a mouthful. Usually you just call it toco. Uh, that is essentially measuring pressure and determining the rates of contraction of the mother's uterus. So these are really sort of the gold standard, if you will, in terms of a nurse and a doc keeping track of how this labor is going. You can monitor the fetal heart rate. If there are patterns of fetal heart rate decelerations, that's a bad thing. It means the baby is maybe not recovering as they want to from uterine contractions. If the uterus is becoming sort of hyper-contracting, It's called uterine tachycystole. That's also really bad for the baby. It's kind of like squishing the baby over and over and over again. Babies don't get a chance to recover and get that level of oxygen. Mm. So electronic fetal monitoring is a way that nurses and physicians, one of the bits of data where they essentially measure how that mom and that baby are tolerating labor. The issue is that it goes on in real time and you see slight changes over time. And Nurses and the equipment typically are not geared towards uh, identifying those trends that are problematic over two or three hours. That's where a solution like what we do at Perigen is really effective because a computer will just sit there and continuously monitor these signals and look for those indicators where something is problematic. Computers are just better at doing that over time than human beings.
2: Oh, so so what perigen does is perigen basically, gives provides the feedback to the clinician so there's it takes the guesswork out of it. they don't have to figure out wait, is this toco or is this tacky? They don't have yeah. to figure that out the machine and, uh,
3: you that, know what it is it's yeah. a great it's a really great confirmatory tool, right mm-hmm. so say you're a super experienced nurse and you're like, yeah, this is kind of a borderline strip and you know the issue with these fetal strips and if you go back to your experience, you probably remember there was a nurse staring at the screen and trying to figure out, where all these feel heart rates are occurring and, you know, right. all of that is very subjective and right. medicine really in this part of medicine ought not be so subjective, right? right? This, this sort of is begging for a very objective assessment, data-driven. We're seeing that the uterus is contracting too much. I mean, let's, let's kind of call it what it is. And so this is why computers and systems like ours, that, as you mentioned, use artificial intelligence for pattern Recognition to determine is this a problem or is not not a problem? We always we want to try and inform the nurse. The nurse is always going to be smarter uh, because she's looking at other various inputs, right? But we want to be able to tell the nurse, look, this fetal heart rate is problematic. Please take a look at this. You might be looking at it and saying, I've seen this heart rate pattern before. It's always worked out. I'm not concerned. That's a concept called normalization of deviance. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're aware of that. The reality is. It's always fine until it's not, right? And, you know, you don't want to be the nurse who, hey, I've seen this pattern before, it's never been a problem. And then all of a sudden, oh boy, we have a problem. Particularly when, because there's so, you know, there's nursing shortage, you're now looking at, you know, one nurse covering one or two or maybe three patients or helping an emergency down the hallway. You just don't want to lose sight of what's going on. So tools that use automated uh, pattern recognition like, like Paragen's, are really good for being an objective benchmark, if you will, that the nurse can refer to. I mean, the National Institutes of Health actually did an independent study and found that our solution was consistent with having a fetal heart rate expert by every bedside.
2: Oh, now, yeah. obviously we,
3: we were really proud about that, but let's, putting, putting pride aside for a moment, it's basically taking an expert and making it scalable, right? You can't, you simply can't have the smartest, best nurse on the labor and delivery floor, you know, cloned and sitting at every bed all the time. So that's where tools like ours can create some scale. So standardization of care at scale is a big advantage of automation. It's one part I think of a solution to creating a more sustainable, safe environment for moms and babies.
2: At what point in the pregnancy are AI tools like Perigen introduced as far as the sure, screenings. so um, so is today, it by Medicaid, Medicaid
3: basically reimburses the uh, episode of care that is having a baby, right? And they and they reimburse the episode of care that is all the prenatal care. So right. the our customers are hospitals who have decided, look, we know we can do this better than doing it all by hand all the time. We know that we can manage more patients more safely by using these kinds of tools. So it's not a cost that necessarily gets passed through to Medicaid or to an insurer. It's basically the hospital saying, this is the infrastructure we use to deliver babies here.
2: Okay, so the device yeah. itself that, that, is, that the mom straps to her tummy for the surveillance, that is given out at the hospital and that's part of the perinatal? Yeah, so
3: that's that's part of how hospitals operate is they have fetal monitoring there, now, we're not a fetal monitor. We're, we're purely software. We take right. the signal that comes out of that monitor and we analyze that and we do all of our pattern recognition uh, analytics against that. But the reality is these hospitals have uh, technology that they've been using for 20 years that's sitting there that captures that signal and that centralizes it and digitizes it and makes it available throughout the hospital. And all of that is great. That's a step in the right direction. But it's a step that we took, you know, 15 years ago. Right. Uh, and there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation since then, with the exception of what Perigen has done to apply artificial intelligence to that signal once it is in fact you know, acquired.
2: And at what stage in the pregnancy is this does this begin?
3: So currently we are and we're a, we're a medical device that's cleared by the FDA. so we go through it you know years of testing and submissions to the FDA. Right now, our technology is used in women who are or babies that are 36 weeks of gestational age and beyond. So, really, considered term babies. So, when you show up at the hospital and say, "Hey, you know, I, I think I'm having a baby," that's when Perigen swings into action. However, and this is really important for what the next couple of years looks like. We've developed technology, and it's currently in front of the FDA right now that allows the use of our algorithms and artificial intelligence in a prenatal setting. And the the reason why this is important is because even today, if you walk into a a non-stress test or an antenatal testing center, even if it's attached to a hospital right now, you see that there's a throughput issue. There's a bunch of moms who have unfortunately had to take time off and they're sitting there waiting to get these tests. And what we do is we can provide greater throughput through those tests, and frankly, a much more exacting measurement of the data that's being derived from that. So we expect by the end of the year, the FDA has signed off on this, that's our hope, that's our intent, that's what they've suggested to us. And hopefully we can then start using our solution in those antenatal testing centers for prenatal testing. Now, if you recall at the outset of our conversation, I talked about how do we get this in the home? How do we get this so, you know, my daughter your daughter all these young moms don't have to drive across town or across the state to be able to get this level of care again it's our hope and it's our insight into the market that within the next 18 to 24 months there are companies that will have gained fda clearance for these tools to be used in the home and that's really exciting because then a mom can do this non-stress test they can they can monitor the baby from the comfort of their couch, and tools like Paragen can automate the analysis of that. So while we're limited right now to essentially when you're in labor, active labor, in very short order, we are going to be helping to uh, drive greater throughput and better standardization of care in a prenatal environment as well.
2: You know, during my pregnancy, I actually owned uh, one of those Doppler devices, and it was extremely comforting to be able to check in on my own without having to run to the doctor. And I'm not for lack of resources in terms of seeing the doctor, but it just was, it was that added comfort. Of course.
3: Look, you know, one one thing I... I, uh...
4: What is a Fisher House? It's a place where families can stay close by while our military and veterans are treated for wounds and illnesses, seen or
1: unseen, at military and VA hospitals.
0: Because the family's love is the best medicine of all. Learn
1: more at fisherhouse.org.
3: I mean, I realize this, you know, watching my wife go through two children. I mean, the, the bond that forms between the mother and that fetus, is it's a remarkable uh, connection in, in most times. And, and so anything that gives you that sense of community with that baby is so, so important. But the reality is what we need to make sure, and what I think the FDA is properly focused on, is making sure that that information is meaningful, that it's not information that is potentially going to upset you or make it, you know, make you think that things are are sort of not going as they they need to, to go. So, there's a fair amount of regulatory oversight that I think is a, is a good thing. Nice. I'm surprised to say that most software people kind of can't stand regulatory oversight. And there are days where I'm not thrilled with what the FDA requires us to do. But then I think about, you know, someone like yourself sitting on your couch looking for that reassurance. And I realize that we need to make sure that these technologies are, in fact, as accurate as they can be. But while that was really reassuring, where the vision needs to go to is that it's something that is clinically meaningful and helps a nurse or a physician get better understanding into how your pregnancy is progressing.
2: Right. I was going to say, so that's kind of where the clinician comes in, right? With the data. So if you think of it in terms of like lab values, you take the labs, but then your clinician interprets that information for you so that you're not wondering, well, what does this mean? I don't know what, what this means. So um, that, that's an excellent point. Now, how do you think perigen will decrease? Or do you think that perigen will decrease fetal maternal mortality?
3: Well, I, not only do I think it, but I know that in a number of our current customers, we have seen remarkable impact. We've got customers that have using our tools, you know, so auctioner, for example, auctioner Health System down in Louisiana. And they-
0: Here's a cool fact. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: They published a paper and I'll be happy to send it to you after this. Thank but- you. Um, using our technology and and a commitment to doing things the right way. I mean, they've got a great safety program there. As you know, it's never just about technology, right? If you kind of drop technology on a problem, you're just going to have a a problem with a load of technology on it. It doesn't help anybody. But, you know, what auctioner and a number of our other customers have been able to do with our solution is build safety programs constructed around using our tool. You know, when you see this from Perigen, here's what we want you to do right? So Octioner was able to reduce the amount of um, unanticipated transfers to the NICU. These are term babies, babies that had no business being in the NICU, but still end up there anyway. The Joint Commission actually is now asking hospitals to report on this information. They were able to reduce that number by, you know, a full 24, 25%. So th- these are meaningful impacts. When they were able to What you know, which in my mind equates to 25%, you know, better outcomes in labor and delivery. These are moms coming in, term babies, no expectation of going to the NICU. And a certain percentage were ending up in the NICU because I mentioned earlier, there are so many of these avoidable events that happen in childbirth. And auctioner across their entire system was able to reduce that by 24%. That's remarkable success. That is by, ha- by having a tool that augments the nurses, that informs the nurses, that helps them see uh, where things are going right and going wrong. Another very large customers of our, uh, customer of ours is in the middle of preparing a presentation that they are going to be um, uh, uh, giving on a national uh, platform around perinatal safety and improvements that they've had, reducing the rates of uterine tachycystole and reducing the rates of these unanticipated NICU events. So so not only do I believe that perigen will make a difference, the this, this statistics are in fact, the data is in fact bearing that out today as we speak.
2: You know, I can't help but wonder about the moms. You said, you know, some live as far as a hundred miles away from the nearest uh, care yeah. center. And so I'm curious about how far out does the data go to get that mom, say closer, Because she has to have time to get there. Um, And time sometimes is the difference between a good and a not so good outcome. How far out does the data go to help get mom in sooner if need be?
3: Excellent question. I I don't have a specific data point for you. I'll share what I've learned about clinical practice. Oftentimes, physicians will say, geez, you know, you are showing signs of being a high risk baby. Maybe there's some sort of a deformity there's a there's an underlying comorbidity there are a number of customers that we work with that frankly end up having to hotel the mom Mm. near the hospital like there are moms on these floors that are there for two and three months think about how the first of all think about how ungodly expensive that is for Medicaid Uh, cover.
2: that's why I'm saying wow
3: right and it's not just the clinical care and it's not just that hospital bed you're now also taking mom out of a position of, you know, earning a wage. You're taking her away from the family. She has other kids. They all suffer. I mean, that's, you know, rarely does this part get talked about when you talk about maternal morbidity. So if a mom is sick, you know, oftentimes they're losing, not only are they losing that wage in the household, but who's caring for the rest of the household now as well? Yeah. All of a sudden, what was, what was a primary caregiver becomes a patient. And so now you've got, you know, hopefully there's another adult around that can help. But all of a sudden you're managing children and you're managing a patient. And it is just a, you know, sort of turns life upside down for these families. And there's an awful lot of expense that goes along with that.
2: Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you you talked about nursing, but let's just, you know, so we talked about how, you know, a number of them are going to be retiring the National Sample Survey of Registered Nurses by the HRSA said that the average nurse is age 50 years old, and there are projections that more than a million RNs are going to leave the workforce by 2030, yeah. although this number is probably greater because of the pandemic and because of you know sure. all the strain on the existing nursing shortage retirements. This is obviously going to include the perinatal set of specialties. What are you seeing in terms of that squeeze and how that is affecting the perinatal care?
3: So the squeeze is affecting perinatal care uh, very badly. So it's, it's very difficult to get a requisite number of nurses on a floor to care for the patients that they have. Um, some of the patients, if they're being given certain drugs like oxytocin, which stimulates uterine contraction, are supposed to have a one-to-one nurse-to-patient ratio because it can be a very dangerous drug and virtually impossible to achieve that kind of staffing ratio. There's another dynamic going on because of this nurse staffing problem that is actually exacerbating the entire nursing shortage. And that is this, nurses are able to make a lot more money today, right now as traveling nurses.
4: Mm. So
3: nurses are giving up the job that they might've had for five, the last five years or the last 10 years. They're signing contracts that are generating a lot more money for the nurse, and I understand that, and I appreciate that, and nurses need to go out and try and find some money. The problem, though, is that all of a sudden you have a nurse that drops into a hospital and did not train there, doesn't really know the physicians there, so maybe is a little reticent to say, hey, doc, you're missing something, or hey, doc, I'm seeing a fetal heart rate uh, a pattern that I don't like because the doctor is going to question that nurse and the nurse doesn't have the equity of having worked there for years to build that reputation. And frankly, some of these traveling nurses, they pop in and they're not familiar with how this hospital likes to treat certain patients.
2: Right. So
3: the the, the not only do we have a shortage of nurses, but the transient dynamic of mm-hmm. this nurse staffing actually adds more and more confusion. Again, this is an area where we've got to find some sort of sustainable level. Going out and getting into bidding wars for traveling nurses that don't really understand how that particular hospital wants to care for its patients is wrong on so many levels. It is never gonna be a sustainable and safe model. So again, the challenge is how are health systems opening themselves up to adopting different types of technology that can help standardize care, whether it's a nurse that's been there for 10 years Or a nurse that's dropped in. How are we supporting that nurse that has just dropped in? And then of course, how do we ultimately build up a cadre of nurses such that we're not in this nursing shortage again? I mean, right now I know a lot of hospitals are pulling nurses from ER and other areas to help in labor and delivery. And you know, these are very different specialties. Although ER and labor delivery are very similar in that it's you know, it's a lot of crazy all at once. So there's a sort of if you're an adrenaline junkie as a nurse. Being in the ER and being in the labor and delivery room is a great assignment for you because you're sitting around and then all of a sudden craziness happens and you need to be able to really focus and think uh, and think well.
2: But right now, a lot of the craziness is because of the patients that are coming in yeah. from the pandemic and that it's drawing resources away from other parts of the hospital because they have to deal with this. hundred
3: percent. I mean, health healthcare is in a really precarious uh, place right now what we've been able, or, or a way that we've been able to help our customers. Yeah, do, that was
2: going to be my question. So how does Perigen step in then?
3: So we have, we've helped a bunch of customers create remote, sort of centralized remote monitoring where you have a single nurse sitting in a room in front of a, in front of a uh, PC and Perigin is essentially, the Perigen software is essentially identifying those labors that are starting to show warning signs. And they're, drawing them up on the screen for that nurse that is sitting in this centralized command center. So take Ochner, for example, they've got a, they call their telestoric, uh central remote patient monitoring. A nurse sits in that facility and sees only the challenging labors pop up on her screen and she's able to intervene from maybe a hundred miles away. She can call the labor delivery floor, call the charge nurse, and say, Hey, could you take a look in labor and delivery room five? You know, patient Smith seems to be having the you know uterine tap That's been persistent for an hour. We, we don't want to allow that to happen. So, if you could please go check on that, that would be great. So, what Perigen's done is it's tooled its application in a way to allow for central remote monitoring. So, again, it's all about scale. How do we get standardization of care, and how do we do it at scale while well, having one nurse being able to provide a safety net across 15 or 20 different hospitals at any given time. That is what I call scale. And that's been a really meaningful use of our technology. And we're really glad to see that. And we're actually investing more in trying to accelerate more tools that allow our technology to be used like that. Because frankly, we see that as a critical success factor for sustainable care on the labor and delivery floor.
2: This has been very insightful. And this gives me hope for the rural communities in terms of um, getting the care that they really deserve at such a, a stressful time. In
1: terms of- Not rest- only is it a stressful
3: time, but I'm gonna point out something that a lot of, another item people don't often think about. If there's a bad outcome, if the mom is hurt, if the baby is born with some sort of uh, uh, problem or deficiency, mm-hmm. just from an overall cost perspective, uh, you know, if if, that, if if there's a baby that has some injury, that is on a capitated basis, that's just an expense that is going to hit our healthcare budget, you know, for the rest of that child's life for the rest of that person's life, right? and, and mom as well. So these are, these are impactful, impactful pebbles that get thrown into a pond, the ripples are pretty remarkable. I'm glad you feel hopeful. I feel really hopeful, too. I, I think that some of the technology that we're bringing to market. And I think some of the technology I'm seeing other uh, vendors that are trying to bring this stuff into the home. I think that's the future of perinatal care. And I'm really thrilled to be a part of that. So I'm, I'm very, very optimistic uh, about what the next few years are going to bring, whether the mom's in a rural setting, whether the mom's in an urban setting. Uh, I think it's really important to have scalable standardization of care. And that's really what parenting is all about.
2: That's, you know what? That just led me to another question. I was about to wrap up, but you just, I just thought of it. I don't want to
3: stop talking, Tamara. <laughs> this, is the, this is the most fun I've had all day.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. So I know you have coverage um, in terms of the rural areas. What's your coverage like? And this is, this is sort of two questions. What's your coverage like in urban areas and how far, how, how far, how close are you in terms of FDA An um, answer from the FDA?
3: Our current solution, which is cleared by the FDA, I just want to be very clear about that. What we have in hospitals now, we're, you know, we're in about 450 hospitals across the country right now. Some of them are academic medical centers. Some of them are, you know, right in the middle of urban centers, uh, uh, you know, Seattle or, or uh or uh, you know Dallas or Houston other other uh, uh, city environments and then some are in more of the you know sort of rural environments so I think if you looked across our customer base you would see that we essentially reflect uh, what the general population w- what we're seeing though is is a lot of our customers understand that it's in the best interest of all their patients and frankly medicine to figure out how to create that bridge how to bridge that divide from a central you know, urban health center, a tertiary care center, an academic medical center, and a community hospital in a rural or an agrarian setting. How do you do that? You do that through tools like our remote patient monitoring. You do that by having a tool at the bedside that is like having an expert at every bedside, such that that nurse that is in the middle of Iowa late at night is not questioning herself. She has a benchmark to go look at and determine and confirm does she feel good about what she's telling to the doctor or, or not so good? So so anyway, I think, we're, I think, like I said, we're reflective of the general population. And I am heartened by when I talk to some of our larger customers who are trying to provide services to a lot of the smaller, more rural entities out there. That's really important. As far as the prenatal tool, which is what we're looking for the FDA from, uh, again, I, I uh, you know, pe- people have have uh, died on smaller hills than trying to determine what the FDA is going to uh, uh, is going to approve. Our hope is that we get this cleared this year. We've done a tremendous amount of work. We've had a bunch of our customers help us validate all of our results, so we feel very, very optimistic uh, that by the end of this calendar year, we have a uh, a tool in place. But you know, the FDA is going to do and needs to do. What they've got to do to make sure that you know all the mothers out there are getting the safest technology they can and, and we understand that
2: and it also sounds like you take feedback from the nurses who use the technology and you incorporate that yeah into your nurses
3: age. ain't shy as we have learned and uh you know so in fact i was just visiting one of our customers out in uh, portland oregon mm-hmm. and you know the nurses the nurse starts the day saying look I've got a lot of problems with this tool. And it was great. And I said, let's hear it. You know, that's why I'm here. And she was so gracious. She was so, she spent the whole day kind of explaining things that she was laughing about how she started that conversation. Mm-hmm. But then she said, look, you deal with labor delivery nurses all the time. We don't have a lot of time to waste. You know, if we have something that we want you to improve in your tool, we're just going to tell you right out, of, right out of the gate. And I say, hey, I get it. You know, that's why I'm here. And it, right. it turned out to be one of the best meetings we've had. But you know, Perigen employees. We probably have half a dozen to, to a dozen nurses that are part of Perigen that oh. help us. Oh yeah, that help us think through the product. That help us educate nurses and customers on how we're using it. Nurses are the lifeblood of of Perigen, and really the lifeblood of obstetrical care. No offense to all the physicians out there, but nurses are really kind of. Kind of running. I
2: didn't notice that physicians were largely um, missing from this conversation.
3: Well, <laughs> look, pe- you know, perinatal care is a lot about nurses. Nurses are your lifeline. Think back That's to your experience. Exactly right. Right? Yep, yep. So,
2: That's true. That's you know. the nurse that was with me the entire time. Actually, no, I'm sorry. What the nur- I, I, my daughter was delivered by a certified nurse midwife. So I went the midwife route. But, you know, all the bells and whistles and the stress. Also, and-
3: yeah, high, certif- as long as she's certified and, and understands when things wow. are starting to be problematic. That's, that's all you can
2: ask for. Yeah. And why are physicians largely um, not part of this discussion?
3: Uh, well, they're not part of this particular discussion because the nurse is really delivering care for the entire time you're there. So she's monitoring your status. It's only when there's issues that the doc is brought in to, you know, give an opinion, or regular updates. I mean, that doc's going to deliver the baby. You know, she wants to know what's been going on, what's been Tamara's history, how do I, but you know, they're, they're pretty good at assessing what's going on in the, in the heat of the moment, as long as the nurse is able to give them information that they feel is credible. And again, that's where a solution like ours comes into play, because the nurse can say, hey, look, this isn't just my opinion, doc. The computer system we have invested in is telling us that we have a problem here. Let's at least look at it. But just by sheer amount of time spent with the patient in, in, in that phase of care, that you know, labor and in childbirth, it's a it's a nurse's game.
2: Well, what kind of feedback do you get from from physicians, if at all? Have you ever had physicians challenge the AI and say, no, 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 this isn't correct? This
3: all is the okay. time. All the time. <laughs> yeah, we've we have physicians say this specific fetal heart rate deceleration, I don't agree with what you're saying and we say that's fine there's two things that i like about this conversation number one is that you looked at it because like that's it's victory if you can get the physicians and right. the nurses to talk together and look at it together right, right? so a happy about that b we're not saying we're going to get every single fetal heart rate deceleration or acceleration we're not saying we're going to get it right what we're saying is we're equivalent to having an expert even the experts disagreed with each other uh, at the at the NIH. But I'll tell you what we do know is that over the course of four hours of labor or eight hours of labor or longer, I feel terrible for the moms whenever I think about that, the reality is we are definitely very, very accurately showing the trends and it's the trend that matters. Remember, it's not one fetal heart rate deceleration that you're arguing about. it's over the course of labor has there been a pattern of fetal heart rate decelerations we need to worry about. So, we are very confident that over the course of labor, we are identifying the trends correctly to the physician. While we might occasionally have a physician or a nurse who says, well, that's not a fetal, a late fetal heart rate deceleration. I say, okay, but over the 60 minutes that it occurred within, how are you feeling about that? You're feeling like we're doing a pretty good job there. Right. And invariably they're like, yeah, yeah, you're, you got that right.
2: And so, do you have physicians on... Perigen. We
3: do this. So this technology was actually created by a uh, professor of obstetrics from McGill University up in Montreal twenty mm-hmm. years ago. We've had a number of physicians work for the company, including uh, a gentleman named Tom Garidi, who has essentially literally wrote the textbook on fetal monitoring, which is great. We've got an advisory board of our customers, I'm very active with, who are physicians that make sure they challenge our science, they make sure we're doing things the right way. The submission we have in front of the FDA is actually looking at thousands and thousands of fetal strips, and they're being judged by physicians for us. They do this work for us. They say, here's what's happening here. Here's what's happening here. So we can test it up against our artificial intelligence to make sure that we're doing it correctly. Without our customers, tomorrow, we would be a mere shadow of what we are today. Honestly, the amount of insight they provide us because they care is remarkable.
2: Well, I got to say, this is really fantastic. And it, again, it does give me hope because it just, the coverage that it provides is so much bigger than, than the shortage, so much bigger than the lack of doctors. It just gives hope that it's like one or two or 10 less fetal maternal fatalities right. happening. Which...
3: Okay. I'm gonna, I've got one more interesting statistic for you. If you've got two more minutes for me. Please. So, one of our customers is Texas Children's, which is part of Baylor College of Medicine, it's a phenomenal group of physicians and nurses that deal with very complex cases in Houston. They happen to have a clinic in Malawi, about 50 miles outside of the capital, a Long Way of Malawi. Mm-hmm. This clinic is doing 5,000 births a year. So, like, you know, a, a typical hospital like, uh, you know, in, in Brooklyn is probably doing Call it twenty five hundred births a year. So this Uh little clinic, you know, that has to rely—that literally, I'll show you a video. There's they're growing vegetables in the middle of the clinic. There's it's just you know they're doing five thousand births a year. Wow. So they had a situation where twelve out of every thousand births were stillborn. Horrific here in the United States or industrialized nations. I'm not sure it's that strange in that part. I mean, you know, Malawi is like the third poorest nation in the world. Okay. Right. So so talk about like trying to manage without resources.
2: Right. Yeah. So
3: so Texas Children's opened up this clinic, they staffed this clinic and they came to us and they said, you know, we really want to work on a project with you. Would you give us your software and help us set it up in Malawi? And let's see if the software can make a difference there. So over the course of a year, we figured out, I think in some instance we're using like a Dixie cup and string, but we figured out how to get a third hand. Fetal monitor at the bedside in Malawi mm. to transmit a signal through cellular and Bluetooth onto an internet in the long way, on the wire, across and hitting a server in Houston, round tripping, coming all the way back to the bedside. That is uh, dedication. It's, it's insane, <laughs> right? And these are all, I think this was a side project, by the way, for all of these people. They didn't, you know, after hours, we like, we found. Stuff, you know, sitting in Belgium to send, ship them materials. Anyway, we've been able to reduce those bad outcomes from 12 every thousand to one every thousand. Wow. Amazing, right? That Amazing. is
2: mind blowing.
3: This is what happens when you very judiciously apply technology and you understand that it's not just the technology, it's the people and what you're doing with it that matter. But here we had a committed group of people who got this thing up and running and now you know every so that's uh, so that's 10 that's you know that's 50 babies that are going to not be stillborn wow in one clinic
2: that's incredible that's an incredible So you know i mean
3: hopefully and the gates foundation and a few other groups of non-governmental organizations are are trying to figure out if this is a scalable model i i you know, to, to I would think it is. I mean, it's you know, sounds
2: like if you could get it all the way in Malawi, it sounds like it's to it's
3: me. Smart. It sounds scalable. I'm not as smart as, you know, Bill Gates. But to me, that sounds like a pretty scalable.
2: And thing. I imagine that the, the Internet infrastructure over there is probably not that great oh. so for you to pull that off. That's amazing. Volumes. Yeah,
3: it is amazing. So, look, this is how I spend my day. Pretty easy to get up out of bed every morning. This is really cool stuff. You know,
4: so,
3: yes, it is. <laughs> and I'm really glad to get a chance to share it with you today. And, you know, you should feel free to call me anytime you want to talk about. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I am curious to see where the the, the home stuff, you know, is. I, I'd like to talk to you about that in the future, if you don't mind.
3: But as soon as this stuff starts to get a little bit more formative, let's do that. Because I, I think that that will be r- really transformational. I really do.
2: Matthew Saffron, CEO of paragen Thank you so much for your time. This was this was, this was great. This was awesome. I really
3: enjoyed it. Thank you for putting up with me and listening. It was, uh, it's great stuff. We
2: love to talk about. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time.
0: Using marijuana before the age of 25 could actually cause changes in our memory. That's because THC, the active chemical in weed, attaches to receptors in the hippocampus, the part of your brain that creates memories. Learn about marijuana at our website.
4: BetMGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code Champion200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 moneyline wager on any major league baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with BetMGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use code Champion200 to win 200 when you bet 10 bucks on an MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire 7 days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem call 1